0: In the late 17th century, all along the eastern coast of the United States, tensions were growing between the Native Americans and the English colonists. But perhaps the most dramatic example of this was New England, specifically the Plymouth Colony in what is now eastern Massachusetts. In 1662, following the death of his brother, Wamsuta, Metacomet became chief of the Wampanoag people. Metacomet was a sensible man and he had little interest in inciting violence against the English settlers. His desires were simple, to facilitate safety and prosperity for his people. In order to do that, he made efforts to maintain positive relationships with the English settlers, even going as far as to travel to Plymouth to request an English name, a request that was granted. He adopted the name Philip, and he bought his clothes in Boston, all in hopes that by keeping he and his people close to the English, he could maintain their sovereignty and freedom. And for years, his efforts paid off, and there was peace between the settlers and the natives. But, unfortunately, that peace would not last. As anyone who is familiar with American history knows, there is a consistent narrative that played out all across the nation as the colonies grew and evolved. And unfortunately, this instance was no exception. Soon, the English began to push the limitations of King Philip's goodwill. As the settlers continued to grow in numbers, so did their need for land. And this led to their increasingly forceful demands to purchase Native American land. As King Philip continued to watch his people's dominion shrink, land that had belonged to the Wampanoag for many generations, he began to grow discontent eventually refusing further negotiations with the English regarding land. Then, in January of 1675, an unfortunate series of events finally triggered disaster. John Sassamon was a Native American man who became very close with the English, learning to speak their language, and eventually converting to Christianity. He worked closely with both sides, serving as a translator to King Philip, and a mediator between the two parties during negotiations. Which put him in a difficult position when, one day he caught word that King Philip was planning an attack against Plymouth Colony. Ultimately, Sassamon made the decision to report the news to the governor. And when news of Sassamon's transgression made its way to the Wampanoag, they did not take it particularly well. On January ninth, 1675, The body of John Sassamon was found, with a broken neck, submerged in an icy pond. He had been murdered. Eventually, a witness came forward, another English-speaking Native American, who claimed to have seen three Wampanoag men murder Sassamon and throw his body into the pond. This accusation then led to English officials arresting three Native American men, who were executed by hanging, on June 8, 1675. With all illusions of diplomacy now dissolved, English and Native American militia parties began to pop up all across New England. And soon, Native American warriors began conducting raids all across the Massachusetts Bay and Plymouth colonies, ransacking, looting, and burning homes in a series of skirmishes that led to several settlers' deaths. On June 24. King Philip himself led a group of Wampanoag warriors to an assault on the town of Swansea, an attack that led to the deaths of nine English settlers and marked the beginning of what would come to be known as King Philip's War. Over the next 14 months, King Philip's War would continue to ravage New England. A dozen towns were completely laid to waste, and many others suffered extensive damage. More than 600 colonists and 2,000 Native Americans died during the Bloody War, a war which ultimately resulted in the region's Native American population being decimated by some 60 to 80 percent. Of those who were not killed in battle, many thousands more ultimately died of sickness, fled to the West, or were captured and sold into slavery. And the truly tragic war would not end until the death of King Philip himself. In August of 1676, the English were given a tip as to King Philip's location by a Native American deserter, and on August 12th, a company of English settlers located him and shot him. His head was sold to the town of Plymouth, where it was placed on display on a stake for the next 25 years. One of his hands were sent to Boston for display. The rest of his body was quartered and left hanging in four separate trees. And with this, King Philip's war was essentially over. But his story would not end with his death. Legend has it that King Philip was in possession of a relic known as the Wampum Belt, a sacred item, a belt inscribed with a representation of the entire history of the Wampanoag people. Prior to his death, King Philip passed this sacred belt to one of his war chiefs, Anawan. However, two weeks after King Philip's death, Anawan, too, was captured and murdered by the English, and the Wampum Belt was stolen. It has since disappeared from history. Many people believe that with the desecration of the Wampum Belt, a curse was unleashed across the entire region, and this curse remains to this day. Nowadays, the location of Anawan's murder is known as Anawan Rock. And there have been many reports of strange events there over the years. Visitors to Anawan Rock have reportedly seen phantom fires burning. Fires that appear entirely real from a distance, but disappear if you get too close. There have also been reports of voices speaking in Algonquian emanating from the trees, and the sounds of drums beating. Some people have even reported seeing full-bodied apparitions of Native American spirits. And while there have been plenty of strange things experienced at Anawan Rock over the years, the curse extends much further. Anawan Rock is only the beginning. This is Simply Strange, the podcast where anything spooky, weird, and goosebump-inducing is fair game. Alright everyone, here we are, episode 24. I'm PJ, this is Simply Strange, thanks for stopping by. This week, we are cramming a little bit of everything into the episode. We've got ghosts, we've got cryptids, we've got Native American curses, a little bit of creepy satanic cult murders. So, buckle up. This is the story of the Bridgewater Triangle. There are some places in our world that just feel off. Places where you can't help but get that familiar feeling that you're being watched, that something unwelcome lurks in the shadows just out of sight. Places where you know something is there, but you're afraid to look too hard for fear of what you might see. One of these places happens to be located in southeastern Massachusetts, where a 200-square-mile triangle Enclosed by the towns of Abington, Rehoboth, and Freetown, is home to some of the strangest and most sinister events imaginable. Its dark forests and murky swamps conjure up feelings of unease, fear, and a constant sense that something is a little off. And sometimes things feel a little off because they are. Sometimes there truly is something lurking in the darkness. And it would seem that here in the Bridgewater Triangle. That just might be the case. Over the years, there have been countless reports of bizarre events, everything from apparitions to UFOs, giant snakes to Bigfoot sightings, even satanic cults, animal mutilation and murder. One of the focal points of the Bridgewater Triangle is Hacmac Swamp, a 5,000-acre swamp located about 20 miles south of Boston. During King Philip's War, Hockamock Swamp was centrally located in such a way that made it a key location for Native American militia operations. The English avoided the treacherous swamp, and King Philip often used it as a strategic base of operations, a sort of staging ground for his attacks on the nearby English settlements. However, Hockamock Swamp has a rich and fascinating history that long predates King Philip's war. For hundreds of years, the swamp has been a lucrative location for hunters, and over time, it became highly revered by the native tribes. It was a spiritual, sacred place, a place that the Wampanoag both worshipped and feared. In the Algonquian language, Hakamak literally translated to place where spirits dwell. And as it turns out, this would prove to be quite fitting for centuries to come. Nowadays, Hakamak Swamp is located in the center of the Bridgewater Triangle and is considered by many to be the beating heart of the strange plot of land. Just about every possible form of unsettling or unexplainable event has occurred there over the years. But some stories stand out above the rest. In the late 1990s, Bill Rousseau lived in the small, mostly residential town of Raynham, Massachusetts, a town that happened to be located right next to good Old Hockamock Swamp. But that being said, Raynham was a quiet, peaceful little town. So peaceful, in fact, that the local police department didn't even run a late-night shift, and instead, in the unlikely event of an overnight call, The messages were just relayed to the police in the neighboring town of Taunton. But one person who did have to work at night was Bill Russo. Bill had a job as a welder at a factory, where he worked second shift from 3.30 p.m. to midnight. And he had developed a pretty consistent routine. Every night when Bill got home, he would take his dog Samantha out for a walk. Samantha was a big dog, a Rottweiler Shepherd mix weighing about 90 pounds. Samantha and Bill went on these walks every night that he worked that shift. From the late 80s to the mid-90s, regardless of season or weather, Bill and Sam would go out on their walks. Typically, they would stick to the sidewalks, walking through their quiet, forested neighborhood toward the center of town. But one night, Bill opted to shake things up a little bit. Right behind his home was a long stretch of power lines that cut through the forest heading towards Hockamock Swamp. And... For some reason, unknown to even Bill, that night he opted to cut through the backyard and walk along the overgrown path created by the power lines. The pair walked for about half a mile along the power lines until they reached an old water wheel from what was left of an abandoned iron works. And then they skirted along the edge of a pond that eventually led them back to the road. But it was around this time that Samantha began to grow uneasy. She whimpered and slowed down, pulling on her leash in an attempt to keep Bill from pressing on. As the two slowly approached the road, all of the lights in the surrounding homes had long been extinguished, and the pair were in total darkness save for one solitary street light looming ahead of them. Samantha's whimpering grew louder and louder as she continued pulling at the leash, trying to break free. At this point, she was completely petrified, and Bill was confused. Of all of the times that they had gone on these late-night walks together, she had never acted like this. He softly asked her what was wrong, and tried to calm her down so that they could move on. But then, the source of her fear finally presented itself to Bill. A high-pitched sound cut through the otherwise calm night, startled Bill's eyes immediately darted to the only nearby source of light, the solitary streetlight, now only a short distance away from them. There, in the middle of the illuminated area, mere feet away from them, stood a creature. It walked on two legs, like a human. But that was about where the similarities ended. The creature was small, only four feet tall, and likely weighed somewhere in the ballpark of a hundred pounds. It wore no clothes, and was instead covered in brown fur. The creature was awkwardly proportioned, with a large pot belly and big eyes that loomed at them through the darkness. Were it not for the late hour and Samantha's terrified reaction, the creature's appearance may have been almost comical. But here, that was not the case. Instead, the creature looked more like a strange nightmare sloth, silhouetted against the darkness by the lonely streetlight. Bill was curious, but his terrified dog was glued in place, refusing to let him move any closer to the creature. It continued to stare at them, and then it spoke, kind of. It raised its arm, beckoning Bill and Samantha with a hairy hand, and in a bizarre, high-pitched wail, It said, E want you. Bill and Samantha held their ground, continuing to stare at the strange creature before them as it beckoned them again. E want you. It repeated itself over and over. E want you. E want you. Its antics growing more intense, more insistent with each repetition. Before long, it added a new word to its vocabulary. "'Here. E want you. Here, here. it said. It never moved, though. It never approached Bill and Samantha. Instead, it seemed insistent that they come closer to it. Baffled, Bill continued to watch the creature for about a minute, until finally he gave in to Samantha's judgment, and the two plotted a course toward home, keeping far away from the strange creature. As they walked away, Bill could still hear it calling to them from where it stood in the center of the streetlight. I e want you. Keer. keer According to Wampanoag folklore, in the forests of New England, there lurks a mischievous little creature known as a Pukwudgie. They have a familiar figure walking on two legs with a large nose, gray skin, and an appearance not dissimilar to a goblin and they are creatures that, according to Wampanoag folklore, are best avoided. They were known to play devilish tricks on people, conjuring up lights in an attempt to lure their unwitting victims into the forest to their death. Interestingly enough, among the smorgasbord of strange things seen in the Bridgewater Triangle, strange floating lights are among the most commonly reported. And when a Pukwadji did manage to lead their victims into the forest, it typically did not end very well for them. They were said to attack their victims with little knives, use sand to blind their victims, and sometimes even lead them to the edge of a cliff where they would fill their victims with uncontrollable dread and a desire to leap to their deaths, which sometimes they would do. When Bill arrived home, the creature's words continued to ring in his head. He was awake all night, reflecting on what he had just seen and heard. And then it hit him. The little creature's jumbled words may have been an attempt at English. Perhaps it was trying to tell him something. E want you. keer keer What if it was trying to say, we want you? Come here. Come here. To this day, Bill doesn't know exactly what the creature that he saw that night was. But as his story has spread, so have the theories as to what he saw. And it's hard to ignore the creature's physical similarities to a puckwaji, the malevolent little forest-dwelling creatures that lure unfortunate people into the forest and to their death. <laughs> Among the phenomena reported in the Bridgewater Triangle are an assortment of ghostly specters that reportedly haunt the area. Not too far from Anawan Rock, on Route 44, just outside of Rehoboth, several people have reported having a rather unsettling experience. As they drive along the heavily forested road, dotted with homes and small businesses, sometimes a ghostly hitchhiker can be seen. Reportedly, the spirit is that of a man— described as looking like a farmer. He wears denim jeans and a flannel shirt, and he has curly red hair and a red beard. According to legends, the burly spirit has the ability to manipulate radios and is an extremely effective hitchhiker. First, he would be seen looming through the darkness outside the car, but soon after, he would often make his way into the vehicle, sitting in the passenger seat right next to the driver. Another popular spirit in the area can be found in the southeastern corner of the Bridgewater Triangle, on a rough, unpaved road cutting through a state forest. According to legend, Copacut Road is home to a rather unpleasant spirit known as the Mad Trucker. As the story goes, the Mad Trucker drives a huge pickup truck. While its victims slowly struggled along the bumpy dirt road, the mad trucker would suddenly appear behind them, with his horn blaring and his blinding headlights aimed straight into the back of their vehicle, following just inches behind and aggressively forcing his victims off the road. There are an abundance of stories of spooky spirits lurking throughout the Bridgewater Triangle, but perhaps the most interesting is that of Hornbine School in Rehoboth. Built in 1862. Hornbein is a historic, one-room schoolhouse, one of very few left still standing in the area today. In 1937, it stopped operating as a school, and today it operates as a local history museum. And it also has a rather fascinating reputation of being haunted. As part of the museum, there are occasionally historical reenactments of what classes used to look like back when the school was functioning. And sometimes, if you're lucky, you can peer through the windows of the school and see a reenactment of a different kind. A ghostly, spectral school teacher can sometimes be seen standing at the head of the classroom with a room full of students looking forward at her. And if she catches you stealing a glance through the window, the teacher will stop the class, lock eyes with you, and slowly fade away leaving an empty classroom behind her. While the Hockomock Swamp is perhaps the most infamous and prolific site of paranormal oddities in the Bridgewater Triangle, there is another place that gives it a run for its money, the Freetown Fall River State Forest, as well as part of its namesake, the neighboring town of Fall River. The Freetown Fall River State Forest is a 10,000-acre state preserve located just at the southeast corner of the Bridgewater Triangle, near Dartmouth. Now, the Freetown State Forest has had its fair share of paranormal encounters. It is home to an abundance of ghostly apparitions, UFO sightings, Bigfoot encounters, and more. But all things considered, these occurrences are pretty harmless. And unlike the rest of the Bridgewater Triangle, the Freetown Fall River State Forest gets its reputation less from the paranormal and more from having been the backdrop for a number of far more sinister occurrences. And the neighboring town of Fall River is shadowed by the same dark cloud. On August 4th of 1892, Fall River was the stage for a brutal and widely publicized murder, in which 32-year-old Lizzie Borden brutally murdered her father and stepmother in their sleep, in their own home, with an axe. Then, a year later, a second axe murder occurred when Jose Correa de Mello hacked Bertha Manchester to death in her own kitchen. But this was not the worst of it. Beginning in the 1970s, rumors began to spread that the forest was a meeting place for a satanic cult. And suddenly, the Freetown Fall River State Forest became a much darker place, instilling fear in many. And before too long, it would become apparent that there was indeed something very sinister happening in the Freetown Fall River State Forest. Signs of cult activity began being found scattered throughout the forest. Satanic graffiti and mutilated animal carcasses. And then, some 80 years after the famous axe murders, another string of murders occurred. These ones even more vicious and violent than the axe murders before them. On October 13, 1979, the battered body of Doreen Levesque, a 17-year-old prostitute, was found underneath a set of bleachers at Fall River's Diamond Vocational High School. Her wrists were bound with fishing lines, and she had been stabbed in the head multiple times and sexually tortured. At first, the obvious assumption was that she had been murdered by a client. But it would not take long for it to become clear that this was not the case. A month later, a man named Andy Maltius filed a missing persons report for his 22 year old girlfriend, Barbara Raposa, who was also a prostitute. And along with this information was a bizarre claim that he believed a satanic cult may be involved, and that Doreen Levesque had also been involved with this cult. Andy was a weird guy. For starters, he was 44 years old and dating a 22-year-old prostitute. And as investigators would soon find out, he was far more than just creepy. He was evil. He told the police that he had been involved with a satanic cult, but that he had recently left the cult and was now a devout Christian. He said that he had no knowledge of the crime, but he knew that both women were also involved in the cult, and he was certain it was connected to Doreen's murder and Barbara's disappearance. He offered to set up a meeting with two other members of the cult, who he believed would have more information. At first, his accusations were not particularly well received by investigators. They seemed far-fetched, and Andy did not come off as a particularly reliable informant. But with no other real leads to go off of, after some convincing... His offer was eventually accepted. And a few days later, the police had a meeting with Karen Marsden and Robin Murphy, two more local prostitutes who were also involved in the supposed cult. Karen was 20. She was a drug addict, fidgety, nervous, and an opened book. She told the police everything that they wanted to know. While her counterpart, Robin Murphy, remained stoic, ...silently studying the situation before her with a scowl. Karen told the officers of a man named Carl Drew... ...a local pimp and leader of a Satanist cult. She told them that he was a brutally violent man... ...that he surely had murdered Doreen and Barbara... ...and that now that she had disclosed this information... ...he would likely murder her as well. Karen even went so far as to take the police to the location deep in the Freetown Fall River State Forest, where the Fall River cult held their nighttime satanic meetings. And it was here, she said, that she would surely be sacrificed to the devil if Carl Drew ever found out that she had been talking to the police. Over the coming months, the police investigation continued, focusing on Carl Drew, but also looking into Andy Maltius and the stoic, silent Robin Murphy, who, as it turned out, wasn't quite the innocent victim that investigators originally believed. During this time, the corpse of missing Barbara Raposa was found in the woods behind an abandoned factory, her wrists tied together and having suffered sexual attacks and blunt force trauma, very similar to Doreen Levesque. Following this discovery, Carl Drew, Andy Maltius, and Robin Murphy were faced with increasing scrutiny by investigators, Maltius, it turns out, knew things about Barbara's murder that he shouldn't have, so he was arrested and charged with murder. All the while, Karen Marsden continued to be an open book, touting Carl Drew as the ringleader, but also alleging that Robin Murphy was something of a second-in-command, orchestrating the vicious murder of both deceased women. However, given her drug-addled mental state and her erratic behavior, Karen Marsden was not considered to be a reliable witness, and investigators had yet to put together convincing enough evidence to detain their suspects. And this was bad news for Karen Marsden. On February 9th, 1980, she was reported missing. Two months after Karen Marsden's disappearance, in April of 1980, a man was clearing a parcel of land near a pond, when he made a disturbing discovery, lying amongst the leaves and debris, he discovered the top half of a decomposing human skull. The startled man called the police, who quickly arrived at the scene and began conducting a search of the area, a search that yielded a frightening array of additional evidence. Investigators uncovered the decaying carcasses of three cats, an array of sheep bones, and several clumps of human hair. In addition, they also found pieces of jewelry, a high-heeled shoe, and shredded bits of a woman's sweater. Forensics later determined that the skull belonged to Karen Marsden. And finally, Carl Drew and Robin Murphy were arrested and convicted. It's likely that we'll never know the exact cause behind some of the strange occurrences in the Bridgewater Triangle, or whether there is some overarching cause, like a Native American curse. But one thing is certain. While the Bridgewater Triangle's reputation is rooted mostly in the spooky, and the majority of the oddities reported there ultimately end up being harmless, it does have a dark side. If you're lucky, perhaps that feeling of being watched is a nice harmless Bigfoot or Native American spirit. But if you find yourself in the wrong places, it could be something much, much worse. Even with the ringleaders of the Fall River cult behind bars, evidence of satanic rituals would continue to be discovered, hidden away in the Freetown Fall River State Forest for many years to come. All right, everyone, that is a wrap for this week's episode. I hope you all enjoyed. If you want to learn more about the Bridgewater Triangle, there's a documentary very appropriately named The Bridgewater Triangle that is well worth checking out. So I recommend that. There's a ton of stuff that I just couldn't fit into this episode, and they do a good job of covering everything. You can watch it on Amazon Prime. I'm sure you can find it other places too if you look, but... I know you all have those week-long Amazon Prime trials still left over from Amazon Prime Day on Monday. So you can put those to good use and check that out if you want. It was a really interesting watch. I enjoyed it. Also, you can follow Simply Strange on Instagram at Simply Strange Podcast, Twitter at Simply Strange, and Facebook at something. I don't know how to use Facebook. Just search Simply Strange, I guess, and you'll find it. If you'd like to help keep the lights on over here, you can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Any and all support is tremendously appreciated. And I'll put the links for Patreon and social media and all that good stuff in the description also. And that is all, folks. Thank you for listening, and I will be back in two weeks to talk to you about something. Hope you have a beautiful day.